Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Space is the final frontier. We've recently just expanded that. So the Kepler space mission is on a roll and it's literally finding planet after planet. But what does it all mean and how does it work? What have they actually recently found and what does that mean for us here on Earth? Plus, we touch on some unusual AI research being done in the classroom. When you start to think about space and just how big it is, you begin to wonder, are we alone out there? Is Earth and the planets around us anything special? Now, our solar system has eight primary planets and then a whole bunch of dwarf planets and moons. And that's great, but what about other solar systems? And that question puzzled us for many years. Since about 1980s, we've found more and more planets, and we've proven that there are lots of extrasolar or other planets in other solar systems. Sometimes they're huge, crazy gas giants. Other times, they're pretty similar to Earth. And the news trickles in about new ones that are discovered all the time. And a lot of the work is being done by a workhorse of the space probe fleet, particularly the Kepler Space Telescope, which was launched in 2009 by NASA which was planned only to work for about three and a half years, but it's been going for seven years and longer to date and doesn't show any sign of slowing down. In fact, if anything, it's sped up. Now, up till about 2011, we'd only found about 3,000 extrasolar planets. So from the entire history of time till then, we'd only found about 3,000. But in a recent batch from the July 2015 data set captured by Kepler, 1,284 new planets were discovered at once. That's the single largest finding of new planets to date. That, it more than doubles the number of confirmed planets just from Kepler alone, and Kepler is pretty much our chief planet hunter. And that's, that's just crazy. Now, in its big data set that it extracted in July, they identified 4,300 potential planets, and out of that list of potential planets, about a quarter of them actually turned out to be, we have a greater than 99% chance of being an actual planet, not necessarily just a dwarf planet. And there's there's probably an equal number that don't reach the 99% marker, but are still a significant chance. They just need more data to analyze, which is incredible to think about. Before te- Kepler was even launched, we didn't even know if it was possible to have exoplanets or how rare or how common they were. It was a great unknown. But now Kepler is just pointing them out left, right and centre. Now the way Kepler works is by observing stars and seeing if there's any periodic dimming in the brightness of the star. And if it is, then it's because something is going in front of it, passing between us and the star, blocking the view very briefly. And by studying the periodicity, the size, the impact and the brightness, we can actually pick up what type of object is blocking the path. And from that, that's how we found thousands and thousands of planets. Now, out of that new batch of a thousand, over a thousand, about 550 could be rocky planets like Earth based on their size. Normally, gas giants don't form at similar to Earth sizes. And nine of them are actually in what we refer to as the Goldilocks zone, the zone where liquid water is possible to occur on that planet. It's not intensely hot that burns everything and it's not frozen solid, which means that there's a high chance for life on those those key nine. 
So those nine join another 21 exoplanets that are already known to be in that exclusive group. Now that's not saying that there is life there or not, we have no idea about that yet. But it does give us a really nice target list to prove that Earth isn't necessarily as unique as we think they are. So let's hope Kepler keeps finding and keeps chugging away well past its normal intended mission date because it is giving us a great boon of research and helping us realise our place in the universe. Now when we talk about Kepler and the ability to observe dimming and periodic dimming in stars' brightness to find planets, sometimes that doesn't just find planets, it finds really weird things. So let's take the case of KIC 846-285, which you probably don't know what it is, but it's more commonly known as Tabby Star. And for years, or for at least a little while now, people have been speculating that the weird pattern of dimming and brightening in a weird odd behaviour and the adjustments in brightness have actually suggested maybe, maybe something is closing in on this star. It's causing it to really weirdly change the way it's brightness. Not with anything that we could sort of guess would be caused by a planet. It's way too much of a big impact on that. Some people suggesting that maybe it's even a Dyson sphere, a big vast shell that is encasing the star slowly and slowly, built by some type of life form, obviously. And that is obviously the plot of many, many sci-fi novels. In fact, there's a couple of great sci-fi stories that actually use that as a premise. Now, Tabby's star is about 1,400 light years away, so we can't just pop around the corner to the constellation Cygnus and really get into what's going on there. But it is a very unusual system. Now, it's named Tabby Star after Yale astronomer Tabitha Boijian, who actually posted a paper on this weird type of behaviour of this star that they were observing. What, what actually happens is that there's lots of dozens of uneven, unnatural-looking dips in the brightness of the star that don't really line up to any sort of thing with a regular orbit or any type of planet that could orbit it that would make sense. And some other researchers, building on the Yale astronomer Tabitha Boijian's work, from uh, Pennsylvania State University said that, oh, well, maybe this bizarre light curve is consistent with some kind of alien megastructure. And everyone else sort of very quickly re-looked at the data and said that that would be a bit weird. So whilst some scientists really jumped at the potential possibility for aliens and daydreamed of fantastic sci-fi causes, the reality is probably very different. And for example, one researcher at the name of Michael Lund, who's a doctoral student at Vanderbilt University, actually started to study the Moore data and compare it to a whole bunch of other photographic plates and analysis on the star system that we have, ranging from 1885 through to 1993. And from all this large set of data, plus new information from Kepler and other sources, what might be happening is actually this 100-year dimming that we've seen in Tabby's star might actually just be the result of maybe changes in actually the telescopes and the method we're using it. The slow, gradual dimming of the star is not caused by ailing technology gobbling it up, but rather maybe just our technology improving on Earth as we're studying it. So Lund worked with his professor in astronomy, Kevin Stalzen, and they collaborated with some German amateur astronomers, Michael Hipke and Daniel Angerhausen, who were also conducting research on the similar lines. When this group of academic researchers and am amateur astronomers worked together, they started to analyse the data and found some more interesting patterns. So sometimes these 
gradual decay isn't so much of a gradual consistent decay. They found in 2009, for example, a 1% dip that lasted about a week, which would look like something like a Jupiter-sized planet passing in front of the stars. But it wasn't symmetrical like you normally expect from a planet. It was asymmetrical, which may be caused by something irregular-shaped or with an irregular orbit, much like a comet. Then after that, it remained light, remained steady for two years without change. And then all of a sudden, it took a 15% plunge, which lasted for a week. And that's a huge, crazy impact. And so all these weird flickering behaviours is probably more caused by irregular objects with strange orbits in the Sun's solar system. Now, we don't know if they're comets, we don't know what they are, but they're certainly probably not a Dyson sphere, and they're very unlikely to be aliens at this stage. But it's still interesting. So don't necessarily believe all the crazy hype and rumours of discovery of massive alien objects in space just yet. Because there's a whole bunch of astronomers and researchers at university working together in the great aspect of citizen science to help find out what it is. So every now and then when we're teaching a class or maybe in a class or listening to someone give a talk or a lecture or a presentation, it can be pretty easy to tune out. Education is a very skilled profession and you need to have a lot of talent, ability to be able to pass information and questions from your students and be able to explain it back to them in a way that they'll understand, answer any follow-up queries that they might have and really help them learn and truly grasp a concept. Education isn't something for dummies. Education isn't something that you can do just by reading a book or reading notes off a screen. It's an active skill that requires a lot of expertise. That's what makes great teachers truly special. So one professor, Ashok Gol from Georgia Tech, who was an expert in and a professor in computer science, really started to streamline and adapt his classes. And to do that, he hired seven teaching assistants. Now, these teaching assistants would assist with his online course, and they would help all the students submit questions and submit their online work, answer feedback, give them feedback on their marking and their assignments, and answer any follow-up questions that the students might have, including over 10,000 online questions per semester. A lot of questions and answers, a lot of discussion between the students. The amazing part about all of this is that one teaching assistant by the name of Jill Watson, was phenomenally talented and, in fact, was really well-loved by the, the students and was given and nominated for high levels of positive feedback on student teaching or teacher assistant awards in the school teachers survey, which is very, very surprising considering that Professor Gohl created Jill Watson using IBM's Watson chatbot platform or technology, a big neural network learning machine, similar to what we've talked about in previous weeks. But this teaching assistant that was built, constructed out of very fancy and complex programs, actually managed to deal with a lot of the students' questions in a reliable and believable way, sustaining full conversations and assistance with her. The professor did not reveal what had happened until the end of semester, which took most students by surprise to find out that their favourite TA was in fact an AI. 
Meanwhile, Professor Goal is planning to adapt this and expand what can be done in the education space using this to help combine both teaching resources and artificial intelligence to help make sure that each student has their own personalised feedback and a lot of contact beyond what which can normally be achieved, particularly in large online courses. Now, he doesn't foresee this kind of AI teaching assistant to replace actual professors and assistants, but it really enables the actual human teaching assistants and professors to streamline their time and focus on the really difficult questions while still making sure that the students get the answers that they need to some of the more basic and simpler ones. And that just shows how AI and humans can work together to help achieve some great outcomes and even, and even improve our education space. incredible things about the planet Jupiter is its beautiful great red spot. This swirling massive vortex of winds and clouds and storms, many times larger than Earth, which is crazy when you think about it, has fascinated both scientists and just the general populace for generations. And as we learn more and more about Jupiter's great red spot, we continually get more and more amazed and discover new aspects of it. For example, we know now that it's actually made of ammonium hydrosulfide, uh, a similar ammonia base. It's a compound, which is typically clear and colourless, especially as a solid. And at the conditions prevalent in the high Jovian or Jupiter atmosphere, it should normally form the core of icy grains or a frosty coating in the particles. And so when humans on Earth were experimenting with NH4SH, which is ammonium hydrosulfide, they tried to actually replicate what they were seeing all the way over in Jupiter. And all theirs was nowhere near as impressive. It wasn't red. It certainly didn't look anything like what we were seeing there. However, new lab tests show that when NH4SH is bombarded with high-energy cosmic rays, so they accelerated protons to about 14,000 kilometers per second, which is crazy fast. Not quite, not speed of light, but very, very fast. What happens is that the NH4SH breaks down into a variety of different chemical shrapnel. This includes negatively charged ions of sulfide. Now, this is where it gets interesting. When UV light irradiates the substance, it probably generates sort of a similar breakdown of product, which is okay, good. So, so far, high-energy cosmic rays, which we simulated with protons accelerated at crazy speeds, plus also UV light, sort of results in this weird decomposition of the ammonium hydrosulfide. So with the stuff that makes up the great red spot, when we try and reproduce it on Earth, it doesn't look anything like what we expect it to. But when we start bombarding it with things that you might find in space, it starts to get a bit more like what we actually expect. Now, once this is sort of this ammonium hydrosulfate breaks down into these little components after being bombarded with a variety of things, what they find is that it absorbs blue, violet, and near UV wavelengths of light, leaving the relatively high proportions of wavelengths visible. So basically, the center and the red end of the visible spectrum. And color, as we observe it, works because objects around us absorb every other wavelength of light bar the one that they appear as a colour, and that's why we see that uh, grass is green, 
or wood might be brown and so on, is because all of the other wavelengths of light are being absorbed by the object. In this instance, this ammonium hydrosulfide that had sort of decomposed after being bombarded with some weird and eccentric types of particles actually starts becoming red. So from being a clear and colourless solid to one that's red goes a long way of explaining why Jupiter's great red spot is the colour it is. Because things like cosmic rays and ultraviolet light are quite commonly hitting Jupiter, and they hit it all the time. Researchers have been able to now show why it appears red to us, and that's because of the breakdown of these compounds in space. So some great work done by NASA's Goddard Space Center that goes a long way to help explaining some of the most visible and beautiful parts of our solar system and exactly why they are, just that special, unique way they are. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. So from over 1,200 new planets discovered by Kepler to maybe some strange comets around Tabby Star and some unusual things that make Jupiter's red spot red from space to AI in the classroom. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.